everyone. Today's episode is the last of our bonus mini season. If you missed the last two episodes, be sure to go back and check out those as well. Also, as with our previous few episodes, this one was recorded remotely because of the ongoing novel coronavirus pandemic. We apologize for any technical errors in the audio, and as always, we'd like to thank all of you for listening. Here's today's episode. Let me give you a scenario. Imagine that your safety, your life is threatened and your babies are threatened. Would you not risk everything to get them to safety? Because here we are, our lives and our safeties are threatened. Our future is threatened. What does it feel like to exist under that threat? You're listening to Seeking Refuge, a podcast about the human stories behind refugees. Your hosts for today are Jackie Burnett and Patrick Anderson. Parnaz Furutan discussing her new memoir, Home as a Stranger. Furutan was born in Iran and spent her early childhood there before migrating to the United States as a refugee. In 2015, she published her first novel, The Girl from the Garden. Just recently, on March 24th, she published her new memoir, Home as a Stranger, about her return to Iran 19 years after she left. Welcome, Parnaz. Thank you so much for talking with us today on the Seeking Refuge podcast. We both thoroughly enjoyed reading Home as a Stranger. Thank you guys for having me. So I guess getting into this, for our listeners who have not yet read your memoir, can you tell us a little bit about Home as a Stranger? Sure. Back in um, 2001, I I was 24 years old and I had recently finished um, my university and I spent a year working as a teacher and then another year working in the film industry in Los Angeles and I had a a bunch of student debt and I don't know, life seemed pretty drab. My father had just passed away from Lou Gehrig's disease a few years earlier and I was at a point of existential crisis. I didn't know who I was. I, I knew that I was a writer, but I didn't know what that meant. Um, I was kind of tired of the drudgery of corporate America. So, I decided after my uncle visited us from Iran to go back to Iran. Now, I hadn't been back since my family escaped back in the 80s when I was six years old. And um, I thought by going to Iran, I might understand myself a little bit better and understand my father a little bit better. And so I I packed my bags and I, I headed back to the country my family had escaped like 20 years previous to that point in my life. And um, before I, I arrived, uh, Iran in my imagination was um, what I had seen on the evening news or the Iran of uh, my family's memories, their nostalgia. So I didn't really have a, an understanding of the country 
for itself, I kind of created this composite character of what Iran was. And when I got there, it totally blew my mind. Um, it was beautiful and, and magnificent. And just allowed for an experience that completely tore me open, changed the entire direction of my life. And um, I decided to write this memoir when I was about to turn 40. You know, I, I realized what a pivotal moment that homecoming, and I, I, I stress that word, that, that homecoming was really crucial in my identity development. And um, I realized it's time to write about it. And so I, I wrote this memoir. It started as a collection of essays and it sort of just evolved into a memoir. Was it difficult at all for you to write it? I know that there are a lot of points mm -hmm. um, where difficult things happen in the memoir. Mm -hmm. So what was the experience like writing it? It, it was um, cathartic, you know. Uh, for a long time, I thought I would publish the memoir anonymous because I'm, uh, I write literary fiction and um, a memoir is a, a sharp left turn from that genre. And I was afraid uh, that it would impact my reputation as a writer of literary fiction. I was afraid that it would impact my reputation be inside a very conservative community. You know, uh, Iranians are very conservative around the idea of female sexual expression. And um, this novel certainly touches on that. I was afraid of uh, being judged. Um, so I, I thought to write it anonymous. And that's in my thinking as I was writing it, it was anonymous. It wasn't until uh, during that same time, the whole Me Too movement started happening. And I started seeing these incredibly brave women stepping forward and being completely vulnerable and open about their experiences around sexual trauma. I don't know. It, it, made me feel a little bit more courageous about sharing my story. I guess when it came time to publish, I realized it is my story and I have to stand behind it. So it was scary to write it, but I, I wrote it and here it is. <laughs> so you described in your memoir that when you first arrived in America, it was like being dropped into a whole new world where the of previous society you lived in no longer applied. Mm -hmm. What would you say was the biggest obstacle you faced in adjusting to life in America? Language, certainly. Um, I mean, I, I was young, but it's, um, I was maybe almost seven when we arrived. And we arrived and settled in a very um, ethnically homogenous town. So everybody was white and everybody was conservative and Christian. And here I was a rather Semitic looking child uh, who didn't speak a word of English. So it wasn't just that I looked different, it's that I couldn't communicate at all. And also it was the 80s and Iran wasn't really everybody's best friend in the 80s. Uh, there was the hostage crisis. Ayatollah Khomeini was in the news all the time. Uh, and so the kids were seeing something at home that sort of informed 
their um, perception of who this stranger was among them. And kids have a real interesting knack for absorbing whatever is happening at home and reflecting that in the public sphere. So I was um, taunted and, you know, excluded. And I realized very quickly that language was sort of key to my survival. So that became a, an obsession to master English. And, um, you know, uh, once, once I figured that out, I realized there was a lot more involved in finding a place for oneself within a, a community where you don't fit in than just language. It's been a long process. <laughs> How long did it take you to pick up English well enough um, for school and communication? And how did your parents ever fully pick up the language or were you their interpreter? Uh, my parents, well, my dad had to hit the ground running. I mean, we didn't come with a lot of um, financial support behind us. So he had to find a job real quick. So he had to learn the language as fast as he could. They, neither of them really mastered it. I mean, my mother's a teacher and she speaks, but she has an accent and she's very self-conscious about her ability to communicate. Um, it took me, I think I didn't really start reading until the fourth grade. In the, in the fourth grade, I came across a book, The Diary of Anne Frank in the library. And um, the, the girl on the cover looked just like me. <laughs> like we are, my school photo and her picture was identical. It was really weird. And I, I, I didn't see myself reflected in books that were in the library. This was the first time I picked up a copy where I saw like someone who looked like me. And I asked the librarian if I could check it out. And she said, no, that's too hard for you. And of course, there's nothing more uh, inspiring to a child than someone telling them no. So I checked it out and I sat down with it at reading time every day in my fourth grade class. And um, slowly, bit by bit, I managed to decode the first paragraph. It took me a long time. And once I realized how reading functions, I couldn't stop. I was, that's, by the end of fourth grade, I was tested at a 12th grade reading level. And from there, it was just, uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't get enough. And reading really helped me um, get a mastery of the language in, in its structure. But speaking was a whole different issue. I was so worried that kids would laugh at my pronunciation. Um, you know, when you would do the choral readings around the classroom, I would have panic attacks before it would be my turn to read out loud in front of everyone. So I, that's how I learned speed reading, because I would read all the sections ahead of me to my paragraph so that I could practice my paragraph before it was my turn. And then I would read it to myself over and over, make sure I understood it so that when the teacher got to me, I could read without error. Um, there's a lot of power in language, you know, the way we navigate society is really very much dependent on that, obviously. And, you know, I'm not stating something that's new, but um, I, I realized that as a, as a kid and e even as an adult, that um, language is sort of key to, to surviving socially. Growing up as an Iranian refugee in America, did the way Americans view Iran influence your own identity and how you regarded your heritage growing up? And how did this change when you returned to Iran? 
Absolutely. Yeah. I, in high school, in middle school, I wanted to change my name to Tiffany. I'm not proud of that, <laughs> but Tiffany was a pop star at the time. You guys wouldn't know that. <laughs> but she was, uh, you know, I wanted to be Tiffany by high school. I was wearing blue contact lenses. You know, I wanted to fit in. It wasn't until I went off to, um, university. I was at Berkeley where I started to, become more conscious of my acceptance of myself as, you know, uh, Iranian and to be okay with how I looked and who I was and where I came from. It was a long process and I, I, I wish I had noticed it sooner, but we didn't really have the same language that exists now around sort of a celebration of ethnic diversity. You know, in, in the eighties, there was no celebration of multiculturalism or, or diversity in, not within the classroom. There was no formal dialogue around that. You, the best thing you could have done was to assimilate as quickly as possible, you know, and to try to fit in as fast as you could and deny sort of any sort of, you know, color within you so that you, you could just sort of merge with the rest. Um, it wasn't until uh, university and, and reading texts around, you know, colonialism and, and stuff that kind of started to open my eyes as to what was happening for me. So at one point in your memoir, you talk about having to go to a police station in Iran for having your ankle exposed. Yeah. While discussing this, you also talk about your time in California during a sweat hut ceremony. Yes. Could, could you talk about these two events and how opposite they are from each other and how they both influenced you and how you handled those distinct differences between Iran and America in that sense? Yeah. So Iran has a lot of very strict, very, very strict uh, rules around uh, female dress. And um, when the government wants to crack down on the people, their first target is to find women and find fault with hijab, the Islamic covering. At the time when I showed up in Iran, capri pants were really in style, you know, where women were revealing their ankles. But to walk in the street, revealing you know calf and ankle is it, it's a risk you are playing with your safety you're you're pretty much <laughs> you're it's dangerous oftentimes it's a political statement it's an act of resistance when young women decide they're not going to follow hijab they're going to put on makeup they're going to wear what they want to wear but they're running the risk of being taken into police stations. And it doesn't work the same way it works here where, you know, there's due process and blah, blah, blah. There's, there's a lot of violence toward women, physical violence and, and, and a sort of instilled terror within um, the institution itself to, to keep women subjugated. Um, when I showed up to Iran, at first, this was very chafing because I'd grown up in Los Angeles. You know, my, my teenage years were spent on like Venice Beach and Malibu. I was very comfortable being in a bikini, you know, and I show up in Iran and I know what the rules are, but I, I'm still uh, an L.A. girl at heart, you know, 
And so one afternoon, uh, three days into my um, home, homecoming, I go to a park to play tennis with my cousin and his friend, and I decide I'm not going to wear socks between my sneakers and my very long hem. And uh, the, the morality police, there's, there's a morality police, they're called the Bastard G. Note this, there's a group of women who patrol looking for women who are stepping out of the parameters of hijab. They noticed my ankles and they took me into the park police station. And the, the, the guy in charge, the police chief, reprimanded me for a very long time in a very threatening way about being so uh, revealing. It was just like a fraction of ankle that was revealed. Um, about a, a week before this experience, I'd gone to a sweat hot ceremony in Encino. Um, my yoga teacher had invited me. It was my first sweat hut experience. There was a shaman. It was supposed to help me find clarity. And at that ceremony, everybody was naked. I, I was a little bit more modest, but it certainly wasn't hijab, I'll tell you. <laughs> so, um, while I was in that conference with the police chief, while I was in his office and, and um, being interrogated for my appearance, for a moment I remembered the, the evening at the sweat hut ceremony. And it just, I mean, this was a moment's thought uh, in the police chief's office. What I was mostly thinking about was just saying the right thing and behaving the right way so I could get out of there. It wasn't until later where I started to notice, obviously, the contrast between the two. But I have to tell you something, Patrick. The, the idea that came out of that experience of putting both the L.A. girl and the girl in Tehran side by side actually led to a deeper understanding that, oh, in L.A. I'm allowed to wear a bikini and, oh, in Iran I have to wear a hijab. What I actually came to understand at a deeper level was that in Iran, a, a woman is um, oppressed. Well, use the word that applies here. Oppressed, and it is her sexuality that, that is hidden, uh, that is, you know, you're forced to hide your hair, your body, everything. In LA, there's a sort of a, a reverse of that. You know, um, growing up in L.A., I was supposed to be thin and beautiful. And there shouldn't be a flaw. And, you know, we wore shorts that were too short and tops that were too revealing because that's how a girl dressed. Every billboard we drove by revealed that image of what a woman should be. So... In both places, we were identified as a sexual object. In Iran, we were identified as a sexual object. And in LA, we're identified as sexual objects. The reaction to that objectification is different. In one country, you have to hide it. And in another country, you have to flout it in order to be deemed worthy, accepted, beautiful. But ultimately, it's the same thing. It's the dehumanization of a woman. So really, what's the difference? Yes, certainly the difference is that in Iran, you can be beaten for showing your ankles, and that's horrible. But you know what? Young women here are getting Botox and breast implants and have eating disorders. So there is a sort of 
enforce terror on femininity regardless in both places. So that's what I came away with from juxtaposing uh, being female in Iran and being female in Los Angeles. Going along with the ideas of culture, I feel that there's a common misconception within the United States that American culture is superior or that the American way is the best way. As someone who has experienced different cultures in such a personal manner, say about this. Gosh, this notion of a superior culture is a name, right? Obviously, the notion of a superior anything is a name. However, there, there is this sort of branding that the way we live in America is the, the way to live. It's the ultimate. It's, this is the best that it can get. There is so much unhappiness in America. You know, I think the opioid crisis speaks to that, right? If not the abuse of substances, then Lexapro. I mean, there is something in us spiritually that is starved, that is unhappy. We are certainly comfortable, thank God. You know, we, we or most of us, not all of us, obviously, those of us who are, who are fortunate enough, enough to be in the middle class, we're comfortable. You know, we have our homes and our cars and our mortgage and our debts, and we sort of have our jobs and we go on day to day, but there's something lacking in the way we live. Um, maybe it's community, maybe it, it's um, a connection to the deeper things of the soul. We're so focused on stuff on um, buying and having and earning, you know, it's so monetary based existence. It's the, the latest gadgets and the nicest cars. And in, in Iran, I found something completely different. And I'm not saying one is superior over the other, but there was a deep connection to the spiritual aspect of life. I mean, there were people who were faced with extreme poverty, and yet there was this sort of appreciation and gratitude for life that I have a hard time finding here in, in America. Although things have certainly changed, haven't they, with, with this pandemic? I think it's kind of shaken us awake. We're realizing that all our pretty stuff isn't really worth that much is it when we're faced with something so crucial as our own mortality. One of the things that stood out to me in your memoir um, and that you already almost spoke to um, concerning clothing and the differences between the United States and Iran is the difficulty you faced in trying to balance multiple female identities, not just with clothing expectations, but with parents' expectations and the role of a woman and what she can and cannot say and cannot do. And you had to balance those while growing up and then when you returned to Iran. So can you speak more to what that experience was like and what your current view of a woman's role is? 
No, uh, yeah, sure, all of it. <laughs> I, I grew up, uh, you know, my parents had just uh, immigrated and they, they come from a generation of um, Iranians that had a very specific uh, gender expectations of girls. And a girl was supposed to be very modest, modest in dress, very well-mannered, very conservative, intelligent, but not so intelligent as to be threatening to a man's intelligence. You know, we were not supposed to be very outspoken, you know, certainly have our opinions, but not passionately, you know. Uh, we were to, you know, dance nicely and play the piano nicely. And essentially almost everything was geared toward making us marketable in a, in a marriage market. And there is a market for marriage, let's be honest. I mean, you know, we, we sort of um, commodify a young girl so that we can find her a husband and set her on off. Regardless of whether she's studied law and has this amazing career, that doesn't matter. It didn't certainly, and for that particular generation, the most important thing was a girl being marriage worthy and, and finding a suitable match. Um, so I grew up, you know, trying to adhere to those expectations, those gender expectations of being modest and, you know, sort of subduing my own passions around like, let's say, political ideas and stuff. And then there was this other contrasting thing, uh, image in uh, what a girl could be in the US. It was okay to voice my opinions in the classroom, you know, and modesty certainly in LA wasn't uh, utmost attribute of a young woman. Of course, there's certainly uh, restrictions in sexual expression for a young woman when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, but um, it wasn't as strict as uh, uh, Iranian expectation, gender expectations. You know, it, it was hard to navigate my identity between all those rules and parameters around what a woman could be. It's still hard. I'm not going to say that I've managed. I mean, I'm, I'm a re relatively educated woman. You know, I'm well-read. I consider myself very liberal in my understanding of, of gender. And yet when I was turning 30 and I wasn't married yet and I didn't have kids yet, I was panic stricken. And it was such an ingrained fear in me that, oh my God, I've turned 30, I'm not married and I don't have kids. That it became overwhelming, even though I knew that there's other options that I don't have to marry, that I don't have to choose motherhood. I couldn't get past that conditioning it really caused a lot of psychological distress. And now I've, you know, I'm in my 40s and certainly there's, you know, there's shifts and changes that happen. You know, I'm no longer the 20 year old that I was. And now there's like a different expectation, particularly in Los Angeles where you're not allowed to show age. You know, you can't have silver in your hair and you can't have wrinkles on your face. It's just uncouth. For example, I, I don't dye my hair. I'm, I'm trying to age gracefully and naturally. And I'm constantly getting comments about, oh, you have silver in your hair. You know, like this notion that I'm 
supposed to maintain the dewy um, complexion of youth my whole life is really restricting and, and, and awful. We're so identified as women by our external appearance throughout our lives that we're constantly forced to focus on the surface of who we are. You know, and it, it requires a lot to realize that that's uh, a form of dehumanization and we need to kind of dig deeper to really find our identities. So it's a lifelong struggle. It's like swimming against the tide. Yeah, I'm still swimming. So that's where I'm at. You've said some amazing things because I know when I was reading your memoir and seeing the differences um, between my current life and if I lived in Iran or your experiences and I was in my head thinking, oh, I'm grateful that I have like the freedom of expression that I have. But now after hearing from you and doing self-reflection during these past few moments to see that there is freedom, but I am expected to look a certain way and I have to, con I have to match those expectations or I'm feel like I'm less worthy and it might not be as much as like a state enforcing it but society is enforcing it and it is true and as you just mentioned it doesn't end when you get older and even get married it continues um, and it is something that speaking to Patrick's question about superiority of culture it might be easy to think we have freedom in America to wear what we want therefore mm -hmm. we might be quote-unquote better in some ways but when you really look at it, there isn't as much freedom as people like to think there is. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it requires a lot of digging to see that um, because they're much more um, hidden the way we are, I'm going to use the word oppressed again, the way we're oppressed here. You know, in Iran, it's easy to identify the source. You point your finger and you say, it's the state. You know, it's um, Sharia and Islamic law. But here, who do you point your fingers to? The Kardashians? They're the ones oppressing us? I mean, what, who, who do you blame? And how? There's, it's much more uh, almost sinister in its scope in that we can't really identify it. We can't say it's this and this and this. It, it requires a lot of... Uh, uncovering to realize where the source is, but it impacts us completely. Given the current relationship between the U.S. and Iran, and really the U.S. and the Middle East in general, how do you view the current refugee crisis in America relating to Middle Eastern refugees? Uh, the, gosh, Patrick, this is a tough one. <laughs> How do I begin talking about this? I don't think we can talk about this without acknowledging what's happening right now. Right now, you, Patrick, are in your home, right? I don't know if you guys are in forced shelter in place, but we are in Los Angeles. We're not allowed to leave, right? We're, we're in home because of the pandemic. The world is turned upside down. This notion that our political borders could have protected us from this, the walls, is absolutely inane right now. I think we've all come to realize that. That all those wars and debates and dialogues and all that jabber about political boundaries that have taken up decades 
of our of our time are, are uh, meaningless right now because viruses don't give a damn about your borders. But what we are noticing with this pandemic is that if there was a coordinated global response, if there was a sort of camaraderie and, and um, community globally, we wouldn't be in this position or it would have been better controlled. If there was clear dialogue, let's say, between China and the rest of the world, if there was a sort of coordinated effort globally by doctors and, and healthcare practitioners and politicians to stop the epidemic in Wuhan before it spread. Like if we had come together beyond political boundaries, maybe this wouldn't be what it is right now. But we are sort of coming together, right? Like we're sending um, ventilators to where they're needed globally. We're sending masks. We're, we're sending doctors. You know, we're, we're sharing information. We're scrambling to find vaccines. All of a sudden, those borders have become sort of dissolved for people. I mean, I'm sure the politicians still have their agendas, but us as people, afraid for our lives and our futures and our children's lives, don't give a damn about borders right now. Because what's happening in Japan is going to impact me. What's happening in South Africa is going to impact me. What's happening in Los Angeles is going to impact Dubai. It doesn't matter. What we need and what we want is a global community. So relations between the Middle East, Middle East and the U.S., I think it's inane and infantile to focus on where refugees can go and where they can't go. I think there needs to be freedom of movement globally for peoples. If there is a locust invasion in Africa and there are hungry people, those people should be allowed to move to where they can feed their children and their family. And I think we need to start looking at refugees differently. Rather than a problem, we need to see it as an invaluable resource. These are people who have expertise, who have ideas, who can help. They can be doctors, engineers, they can work in the agricultural industry, they can be healthcare practitioners. We, I mean, in about three months, LA is gonna start burning up again. We have wildfires. I mean, like in three months, the hills will be on fire again. We can use some firemen. We need to stop seeing refugees as a problem that's gonna leach our system and see it as a resource that it is. Nobody is trying to come here to suck our purses dry. People have dignity. They want to work and they want to contribute. Let's employ that. Let's see it as the resources it is and drop this infantile notion of borders and you stay there and I stay here and you, if I give you a visa, if you meet these qualifications, then you can come. You know, we're, we're not using our resources like human intellect. Let's, 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 drop all that nonsense. And I mean, if there's ever been a time to really start thinking outside of the box, 
literally the box because that's what political boundaries create. I think it's now. That was a phenomenal answer. I loved it. (laughs) So speaking, continuing speaking about refugees, not only um, were you a refugee in America and your family and you had that experience, but when you returned to Iran, you had a lot of interaction with the refugees from Afghanistan. And you spoke a lot about them coming over and how those interactions were. And I just wanted you to speak to um, our listeners about your experience with the Afghan refugees and how Iranians treated the refugees. And if you see any parallels or if there's things that worked better in that experience, what we can take from it now. You you know, the way uh, Iranians treated the refugees is the same way the U.S. treats the refugees with skepticism, with disdain, with you know, the, the Afghan refugees who were coming over were not treated very well. They held the lowest positions. They were sort of in this sort of enforced poverty. What I was seeing, this is right before September 11th, there was a huge deluge of, of refugees in Iran, mostly um, men. I didn't see many, many women, probably because the Taliban had them all in their homes, you know, locked up. It was heartbreaking. You know, there was old men who were doing menial labor to survive. And the way they spoke about what they experienced in Afghanistan was horrible. My uncle had a young man who worked for him. He met this young man when uh, he, the, the guy, the Afghan refugee was 15 years old. Um, that boy at the time saw every member of his family murdered save his two-year-old cousin at 15 he picked up his two-year-old cousin crossed the mountains into iran on foot and then he got a job in construction so he could raise his infant cousin i i can't wrap my mind around that i can't begin to understand it, but it happens all the time. I mean, how many people do we have walking on foot toward America, trying to get here, carrying their two-year-olds? Uh, I don't know, I, I wonder what's, what mechanism there exists in the human mind for us to turn off our, our empathy and our morality when we're dealing with refugees. But for people who have a hard time understanding the refugee experience, let me give you a scenario. Imagine that your safety, your life is threatened and your babies are threatened. Would you not risk everything to get them to safety? Because here we are. Our lives and our safeties are threatened. Our future is threatened. What does it feel like to exist under that threat? To not have mobility, to not feel safe. We're all experiencing it now, living under the threat of death, you know, of hunger, of poverty. We're now experiencing it. And and God willing, It'll resolve itself before it becomes like a Syria or a Yemen. But we can imagine now what that might look like. 
it's real for us. You know, we've existed for so long thinking that we're untouchable, that that sort of tragedy won't come near us. But now we see that it can. So perhaps that'll open up our hearts to other people who've experienced tremendous tragedy and just want to live. Switching gears a little bit, what do you want to tell our listeners about the Iran that you know that we don't see on the nightly news? I know you've talked that when you first went back to Iran, the only Iran you knew about was the one on the nightly news or your parents' expectations and or your parents' stories. And a lot of Americans don't get their parents' stories. They only are based on the nightly news. And yeah. that doesn't give an accurate representation. So what would you like to tell our viewers about the Iran that you know? I, I just recently wrote an article for, for NBC Think on this when, <clears throat> when General Soleimani was assassinated, what we saw in America back, God, when was it? That was in December. What we saw in the U.S. was this outpouring of, of mourners in the streets, people uh, crying over the death of this man. What the news didn't tell us, didn't explain, was that those mourners were being busted. in. There was that, that public transportation in Iran was at almost a complete standstill because every train, every bus, every mode of transportation was sort of hurting these mourners into one location so that when the camera would pan out over the street, it would look like there was this mass outpouring of grief. What they didn't explain is that everybody else who realized that Soleimani was a murderer that was responsible for just a month previous to that, shutting down the internet and opening live ammunition on protesters that poured out against the government, that there were people who were not sad that he was assassinated, but they couldn't step out of their homes and go into the streets and say, we're not... We're, we're happy this guy is gone. They couldn't do that. Why couldn't they? Because it's, it's a state that requires severe use of propaganda in order to ensure its, its own survival. So it's going to show that everybody supports it. We can easily understand this for North Korea. When we see images of North Korea, we can identify, oh, those poor people, they're forced to show their support. But for some odd reason, when it comes to Iran, we don't make the same connection that those poor people are forced to show their support because they are at the risk of their lives. If you show dissent, you will be imprisoned and, and killed. You cannot protest that government because when you do, they shut off the internet for three days and all kinds of horrors are enacted upon the people. There was thousands of people in prison during the November protests. The world didn't know about them. There were thousands of people killed in the last 40 years. People who have been just rotting away in prisons. We don't see that. that. And Western media doesn't show it. For some reason, we're focused on the same image that Iran's government wants us to see. This sort of united, everybody is for us, we're happy against America. That's not true. 
when I was in Iran, I was, uh, you know, hanging out with the youth of Iran. And that's not what was happening. I mean, we were reading Bukowski. We were listening to Bob Dylan. We were watching American movies. There was this, there wasn't this antagonism toward the U.S. that is, ex exists in the media. There was this embrace and love. You know, when September 11th happened, there was the, the news was saying that there were celebrations in the streets of Tehran. There were no celebrations in the streets of Tehran. There seems to be this coordination of propaganda. If the, if the two countries come together at all in something they agree in, it's that one false narrative of a people who are also against the U.S. No, the people are not against the U.S. The government wants the U.S. to believe that the people are united against this hatred of America. That's not the case. The people are silenced through terror and violence. I think the U.S., I think the people in America need to understand that. that we're, we're not seeing the truth. We're seeing a constructed image of very professionally designed and curated scope of the lens, of the camera lens that shows us what we think is happening, but that's not what's happening. That's just the image presented to us. The people of Iran are different from what the media shows us. That's what I hope people will start questioning that image. Going along with these narratives, uh, you mentioned in Home is a Stranger that many Americans are not exposed to the real relationship between Muslims and Jews in Iran. Uh, can you speak a little to that relationship and the misconceptions that exist around it? I mean, I think throughout the Middle East, there's there, the, the dominant narrative is that there's this constant contentious war between the two um, peoples, the Muslims and the Jews. I actually, this is a very personal topic for me because I, my, my father is Muslim and my mother is Jewish. I, I'm, I'm the living embodiment that that's not always the case. It's not always a war. Sometimes there's love. Certainly when my parents decided to marry, there was a lot of controversy within the families. And throughout their relationship, I grew up listening to the particular stereotypes from each side. You know, the Muslims had their ideas about the Jews and the Jews had their ideas about the Muslims. So there is definitely a, a disconnect between the two. But uh, when I went back to Iran, I stayed with my uncle, my mother's brother, so he's Jewish. And this Jewish man had... Um, created this space within his home and around him where his, his sons, their friends were all Muslim. The Jews are a minority in Iran. And my uncle would organize these wilderness trekking trips where he would invite these kids. I'm talking like trips of 30 to 40, you know, young people. He would take them into the wilderness and we would hike from one village to let's say another through this terrain. Well, there were no trails. 
you know, he, he understood topographic maps. He knew how to find freshwater springs. And he would guide these group of kids from one location to another up these huge mountains like the Elbors Mountains through rivers. Uh, you know, we, we carry our packs over our heads with the water like rushing past our waist. I mean, we would walk for 12 hours a day we would, and then we would set up camp and we were literally just surviving with what we had in our backpacks. We'd make our fires and we would heat up our food and we would sing by the campfire and what he was doing essentially was he was pulling these kids out of this sort of tomb of the city because the city had all these restrictions and it was crowded and it was polluted. He was taking them out and sort of guiding them through the wilderness and in that process allowing them a moment of respite to breathe away from the restrictions of the Islamic theocracy, away from the pollution and the crowds. But he was also teaching them this sort of confidence in themselves and their ability to survive in this sort of joy in existing in the human body of the strenuous walk of the, you know, like when you're, when you're wilderness trekking and when it's uh, very difficult, I mean, something as simple as uh, stopping for some water, you really don't th take things for granted. Thirst and the quenching of thirst becomes amplified he would guide these children. They weren't children. I mean, we were all in our twenties, but to him, they were his children. He would guide them through the wilderness and allow them this experience. And these kids adored him. I mean, they, they worshiped him. He was, they, they had a name for him. They called him Parisafid, which means white feather. He had a sort of like, Native American name they had given him. He was a chief to them, you know. And these were Muslim kids. They had grown up with the same stereotypes, the same sort of institutionalized racism that exists in Iran. And yet this man was something of a father figure to him, to, to these children. He, he helped them, you know, survive the oppression of what they lived through day in and day out. And the skills they learned were invaluable. The skills I learned from him were invaluable. I use them to this day. I mean, he taught, he taught me how to climb to the summit of a mountain and then down. And that climbing became metaphorical for you know, the challenges that life gives you that summit became a metaphor for achieving and then realizing that there's so many more summits and realizing that the summit in and of itself is not the goal, but the walking is what's important. The joy with which you take each step is what's important. I mean, his lessons were invaluable. He ended up passing away also from Lou Gehrig's disease, the same disease that took my father. But he left a, a, a tremendous impact on those Muslim kids. And when he passed, they had his ceremony in a synagogue and those kids showed up and they put on their kippah and they prayed. And that's beautiful.
Patrick and I both thoroughly enjoyed reading your memoir and um, can think of so many reasons why people need to read it. But why do you think people need to read Home as a Stranger? What do you think the biggest takeaway is from it? Well, I'm hoping to provide a different narrative about the people of Iran from what, we're, what we see the dominant narrative. That's one reason. All the narratives coming out uh, from Iran are usually about, oh, the oppressed peoples and the suffering. And, and not many people talk about the joy. And that in and of itself is an act of dehumanization when we just reduce people to the oppression and the hardships that they endure, when we don't see things like how they dance and how they eat pizza and how they fall in love and like their humanity. And I, I certainly touched on the oppression that exists because you can't ignore it, but it wasn't the focal point of my experience there and it's not the focal point of the book. The focal point of the book is the joy and how human beings manage to live joyfully despite the hardships that they're forced to endure. So that's one reason I hope readers will be drawn to the book. And the other is an homage to being young, you know, like you and Patrick are in your 20s, I'm going to guess, right? You guys exist at such a magnificent age. It's the best. <laughs> I'll tell you right now from the wisdom of my whole 43 years that there is nothing more wonderful than being in your 20s because like you're not quite jaded and the world is open and you can make life whatever you want it to be and you still have the power that sort of untethered imagination that comes from childhood it's still alive in you but you're an adult too so that you can make life as big and grand and impactful and magnificent as you want it to be. Life hasn't quite beaten you down yet. <laughs> Not that you're beaten down at 43, but that courage that exists in your 20s, that anything is possible attitude, gets muted a little bit. So it's an homage to that period of time in our lives where the world is just open and you can make it what you want it to be. So that's another reason why readers might enjoy it. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you for inviting me. This was really wonderful. That was Hernaz Furutan, who just released her new memoir, Home is a Stranger. It is currently available at bookstores everywhere, as well as on Amazon. We really encourage you to support local bookstores in your community. Thank you so much for listening to this bonus episode of Seeking Refuge. If you have a story to share or you want to get in touch with us for any reason, you can email us at seekingrefugepodcast at gmail.com or follow us at Refuge Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Also, a huge thanks to Maxie International House for making this show possible. Be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. That's all we have for now, but we'll be back soon with more content, so stay tuned. Stay safe out there, and we'll see you in the next one.